chapter 13. Let's pray as we open up God's word. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. I pray you change us. I pray that we would see the, how you want us to connect the dots. Here in 2023, I pray we would see that your word is living and active. I pray, just as your word says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I pray today your spirit would judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And I pray that we would follow you completely and wholeheartedly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at the end of another era. We, we talked about the end of the era of Jezebel and what a notorious era it was with Ahab and Jezebel. But today, we're going to look at a passage dealing with Elisha. Elisha's home going. We see Elisha called home. Today, we're going to focus on 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings 13, and as we look at this passage, today we're going to focus on four lessons within the movement of this narrative. And the first one is simple, but yet I pray we would take with great seriousness. The first one, don't treat God's mercy lightly. Don't treat God's mercy lightly. When we jump into this passage in verse 1 of chapter 13, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 17 years. It's easy, isn't it, when you get in this narrative. If you're not careful, you just get lost in the narrative. And you lose sight of what we're learning, and you lose sight of how the Holy Spirit is bringing out the details of these narratives. And one of the realities that you got to keep in mind in order to understand, because what we're looking at today are two more kings in the line here, two more kings in the line of Israel. And we see this, and, and it's important to keep in mind what we just read in 2 Kings chapter 10, just a while back, it said in 2 Kings 10.30, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. It's fascinating because uh, in looking at timelines and in looking at uh, geologies of uh, trying to figure out this, it's interesting because Jehu, there's going to be four people that come from his line. And the promise of 2 Kings 10.30 is the only explanation as to why Israel continues for so long until it goes into captivity. Because God keeps his word. And he did it with Jehoahaz. And we're going to see Jehoahaz here in the first verses of 2 Kings 13. And then we're going to see Jehoash. And, and his name can also be Joash. I, I remember, you know, that's the nickname you could go by. Uh, but then after Jehoahaz, then Jehoash, and then Jeroboam II, and then following Jeroboam II was Zechariah. Four different kings 
And each of the kings demonstrate God's promise. They demonstrate God's promise. We can take his word to the bank. So that's the only explanation. So as we get started, we begin to see some of the problems. But look at the sad reality. He reigned in Israel 17 years, but in verse 2, it says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. A lot of J's, isn't there? A lot of J's in this uh, list of kings. But you remember Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. What was his sin? If you, if you summed it up, he would rather worship what was convenient than worship a holy God. And what did he do? You remember, he, he was so pragmatic. He, he just wanted to do what he thought would work. Whatever he thought would work for him, whatever he thought would work for the people, when we lose sight of God's word and we begin to make God in our own image, we can come up with a lot of spiritual truth, but they're not real truth. They're, they're false truths. They're just ways in which we recreate God in our own image. And so what Jeroboam did is, is remember, he was so pragmatic, he thought, wait a minute, I've got this uh, northern kingdom And in order to keep my people from being allegiant to the south and going to Jerusalem to worship, I must create two more worship centers, one in Dan in the north and one in Bethel at the southern part of the northern kingdom. But what did he do in that process? He created idolatry, and he brought in the worship of false gods. And so sadly, what you read about, I was listening to someone that I have a lot of respect for, and I didn't know this, but the obituary that we're going to see throughout, there's like 24 of them to this point that are very similar. And it's basically, they lived, they did what was right in their own eyes, they sought after the fall, they followed the sins of Ahab, they followed the sins of Jeroboam, and they died. And that's sort of the sad reality of what life looks like when we do it our own way. What life looks like when we don't trust in the promises of God when we take on our life and reject the revealed will of God, when we reject God's provision for us, it's going to end ugly, and it's going to end tragically. And I pray that one of the things that happens as we are a church going through this long section of the history of Israel is that the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom to see, may I look at my life differently, and may I pause And may I learn, because how tragic is it that these men did not learn from King David, that they did not learn from the sins of Solomon, that they did not understand what God was teaching them. And may it not be true of us. And that's what's happening. So he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, followed the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. He did not turn from them. He, he, you get into verse 3, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Benadad, the son of Haziel. So basically, you've got Syria, and you've got Israel, a constant battle. You remember when Elisha wept before Haziel because he knew the grief that Haziel would bring upon the people? Well, now we're reading about it since that statement, since that scene. 
we're seeing constant battles with Haziel. Haziel came into the throne through God's sovereignty in Syria, and we see the constant issues. I I wrote down, or I printed out this chapter, and I just went through it, and one of the things that I tried to observe was, what do you learn about the character of God as you look at 2 Kings 13? And there's so many different characteristics of God. I'm not going to bring all of them out. But one of them is, is interesting because you're going to see the kindness of God, the compassion of God, the omnipresence, God is everywhere, the omniscience, God is all-knowing, the omnipotence, he's all-powerful. But, but you also see an issue that we can't miss because a lot of people want to think about those positive attributes of God that we see as positive, like God is loving, God is kind. But, but if we don't understand the anger of the Lord, we'll never understand who God is. The question is this, why would God be angry? We have to remember the only type of anger that God possesses is righteous anger because he's holy in all his ways. You see, if we understand the anger of the Lord and the judgment of God, it immediately begins to completely just chip away at the surface this facade of self-works. You may be here with us today and you're thinking, you know what? I need to be in church more because I need to build my life and I need to just embetter myself and I need to, I need to do better spiritually. But, but behind that mentality is what the scripture would speak of is like a works righteousness perspective. But here's the issue. God is angry with sinners. God is holy and can't look upon sin. And when we begin to understand that, we, I pray, would see our need of a substitute. The beautiful story of redemption that that Christ Jesus came to take our place. That, That we are walking in a life where we are ever before the anger of the Lord for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. The good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself. And by grace through faith, we move from a place where God is angry with us into a place where we are reconciled with God. Amen. That's the hope of the gospel. You may be here today and you're thinking, I'm overwhelmed because I'm in a place of sin and I'm in a place of judgment and and I know that God is not pleased with me. But the beauty is this, is by grace through faith, God is pleased with those who depend on his son. And the beauty of justification is that those who believe in Jesus, when the Father looks at me and he looks at you, those by grace through faith who've trusted in him, he sees not our work, but he sees the righteousness of his son that covers us. That's beautiful hope. But the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria. He was sovereign in the dealings of nations. How do we process all that's taking place in the world? One thing we have to remember is that God is not mocked. And when it looks like things are falling apart to us, things are coming together because this is his world. It's not a world where he is wishing that he could turn things. He is sovereign over the world. All things that happen in nations, 
all things that happen in countries are under his sovereign rule. And I pray we would see the joy and the hope in that. And you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound good to me. Well, think about the alternative. <laughs> the alternative is, is, is nasty. The alternative is hopeless. But the beauty is this, what better way than God who is good and sovereign and holy and just to control the very world that he created. So we read this and we see the anger of the Lord. We see all these things happening. We get into verse 4. And here's what's amazing. A man that was sinful, a man that was going his own way, he sought the favor of the Lord and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them unbelievably sought the favor of the Lord. Our God is a God of grace. He's a God of grace. He sought the favor. It's the idea of uh, to entreat, to appeal. You can get an idea of this uh, when it says, Psalm 106, many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Psalm 106, 44, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. You remember, uh, you might have heard this psalm before. I was reminded of it in looking at some cross-references. Psalm 50, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And we see he's a God of grace, a God of grace that, that in our sin... By his grace, when we call out to him, he, he hears us. He hears us. He listens to us. And, and it reminds you that it's comforting here that he sees their situation. He sees it. It says, for he saw the oppression of Israel. We've looked at this before, but isn't it easy to get sideways in our thinking? And, and sometimes we think really incorrect things about who God is. But, but be comforted by this because it's a reminder that God sees. He sees you in your plight. You may feel alone today. You may feel like there's no one in the world that understands you and where you are and the hurt that you face. But the beauty of, of, of some of the application that we get as we read through the narrative is that God's not only holy and he's just, and, but he's kind and compassionate and he's omnipresent. He sees where you are. And in your hurt, when you call out to him, he sees. He sees there's hope for us that call on the Lord. And, and we look at this, and it reminds you of, in the history of Israel, you've got to think about this, because you move from the exodus, and then really you see the wandering in the wilderness. You get into the time of conquest in the book of Joshua, which is like a seven-year period. And then you get into that book called Judges, which is about 350 years in the history of the, of, of the people of Israel. And so all these stories are really important to remember because it reminds you of this. Remember in the Exodus, right before the Exodus, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And so God is still seeing the affliction of his people. He saw it in Exodus and, and here in Second Quran, I mean Second Kings chapter 13, he continues to see it. So God is kind. By his grace, he's willing to respond. He's patient. He's long-suffering. Verse 5, Therefore the Lord gave Israel a Savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians 
and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Think about it. They weren't living in their homes. Imagine, it's easy to not understand the depths of the consequences that they were facing in these skirmishes, in these wars. But imagine that. Imagine if uh, today you had to leave your home and you weren't in your home anymore for a period of time and they got to go back to their homes. God brought a Savior. The grace of God, even as the people are disobedient and unwilling. I don't know about you, but I don't trust any Christian that can't relate to that because we've all been disobedient and unwilling. And if we look at Israel and don't see ourselves, we, we, we see here that they were disobedient and unwilling and hard-headed and stubborn, and yet God provided grace to them. He brought a Savior. One of the questions that's a natural question of reading this is like, who is the Savior here? Is it one of the kings? Is it the king in the storyline that comes up next? Many people believe that he's actually speaking about Elisha here that God raised up Elisha. There's similar wording with the language of how God raised up Moses. Some people have connected the two. I I, I tend to to lean this way. It's a beautiful picture of even as Elisha is sick, that as a righteous servant of God, the Lord's grace was on the nation for Elisha to be involved in their life. It may have been the king, but Regardless, the bigger, broader picture is the grace of God raising up a Savior. And who it was, we can speculate, but what a beautiful truth. I love this because think about the compassion and the pity and the mercy of God. And and I was reading one uh, comment by someone, and he said, Our writer implies that sometimes Yahweh's pity over the distress of his people triumphs the wickedness of the one seeking him for relief. What a, what, a, what a picture of God's grace it goes on. In the wake of Yahweh's unguessable compassion, we meet Israel's trenchant ingratitude. The warmth of God's pity did not soften the hardness of their infidelity. There was no memory carryover that claimed and won their gratitude. Can we relate with that? Verse 6 explains it. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. What is God calling us to as we look at this? We, we learn of the mercy of God. The mercy of God, but we also see an unwillingness of the people to depart their, their sin. And so as we look at 2 Kings 13 at the beginning here in verses 1 through 13, let us pray for hearts that truly repent. They wouldn't depart their sin, but what is repentance? Repentance is a a turning away. It's not only a change of mind, but it's a change of heart that affects the behavior. It's not just changing the way you think, but it's something that deals with internally and outwardly So if you're going this way towards sin, towards the things of the world, towards earthly pursuits, and and by the grace of God, you see your need, you turn and you depart from your sin and you look to Christ. And so we can learn from that. Paul says it like this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, 
and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's a picture of, of what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He, he's speaking of, of, of their repentance into salvation, their conversion. But, but be reminded that let's not take the mercy of God lightly. Let's look to him with whole hearts as we looked at last week. So the army is decimated. You get into verse 7. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. That's a decimated army. And then you look in verse 8. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so it tells us he died, and it tells us who comes to reign in his place. To give you an idea, if you can read that, you see Jehu at the top. And in the verses 1 through 8, you're looking at Jehoahaz. And then you see his son. And that's who we begin to speak about now. It's Jehoash. It's Joash. They're two names that are speaking of the same person. So we move from Jehoahaz and we go to Joash. And we read in verse 10, in the 37th year of Joash, kings of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 16 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Isn't that a similar obituary? It's crazy, isn't it? Because, like, you know, we, at the end of the day, what will people write about you? They can say, you know, he, he did this. He was a part of this club. He, he, he loved this team. He, uh, he participated in this. He, I mean, you, you can think about an obituary you've read recently. But what if the Bible was writing your obituary? It doesn't mess around, does it? It doesn't tell us what clubs Jehoahaz was a part of. It tells us basically whether or not he had a heart for God. It tells us whether or not he followed God and departed from the world. But sadly, what we read over and over and over 24 times so far, the obituary that's continuous in the life of Israel are people that heard the word of God and had half-hearted hearts. They didn't depart their sin. They left. I'll tell you, if you live... For the things of the world, your life will be summed up ultimately by your resistance to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell you, when we think about little Piper today, we think about the kids in this room, all of you teenagers, what is your life going to be marked by? Are you going to be marked by being a good athlete? Are you going to be marked by making a lot of money? by marrying into a successful family? In the end, what will be said about your response to God and his word? What ultimately will you be known that you departed from? Departing from the things of God or departing from the things of the world and by grace through faith, repenting of sin and turning to Christ. Let's don't take the mercy of God lightly. 
His mercy is extravagant. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It says in Romans chapter 2, he is a kind God, and he calls us not to take that lightly. The second one, don't downplay the seriousness of half-heartedness. We get into verse 14 through 19, and it ought to be typical to us and exciting at the same time, but Elisha is involved in some really amazing stories. I mean, interesting, interesting guy. And, and most of his encounters with people are, are odd to us, are unique, but they speak of like the unique way in which God was impacting his life and ministry. In verse 14, now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Don't downplay the seriousness of half-heartedness that's illustrated with Joash. We're seeing in verse 14 through 19 the danger of half-heartedness that we spoke about last time when we looked at that long narrative in 10 through 12. And what is it about Joash that illustrates half-heartedness? Well, many things, but we'll pick out a couple. Number one, his half-heartedness is illustrated in what he loves. And you see this in verse 14. Elisha is sick. He's going to die with this sickness. Joash, king of Israel, went to him, wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Have you heard that before? Remember that statement? That's the statement that Elisha utters at the transferal of Elijah into heaven. And what does he do? As Elijah leaves, he cries out, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And now the king is using the very same line that Elisha uses in 2 Kings chapter 2. At first it appears good. It seems like he's heartbroken over this spiritual leader of Israel. And he comes to him with a sense of care and concern and, and pity, but not all things are what you see on the surface. You see, when we look at this, um, the word is actually he wept not before him, but in the sight of the prophet. Aha. Sometimes our tears are very revealing. You get the sense that, as with many of the kings of Israel, he was enamored with the world. No heart for Yahweh. I was listening to uh, a Scottish guy, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and, and he said something that really struck me. He said, isn't it sad? Here's a man that, that had... Elisha, Elisha on the scene, and, and, and didn't take advantage of him. Take advantage of him in the sense of like, Elisha, would you teach me the things of God? Elisha, your ministry is obviously evident in the sense of what God has done through you. You clearly proclaim the word of God. Would you show me wisdom? But when does he come to him? He comes to him at the end of his life, and when he comes to him, it's not that he cries before him, weeping over Elisha. You get the sense that he's not worried about Elisha. 
He's not worried about him in his death. He wasn't worried about him when he was alive. But now what happens is he's worried. Why? Because his kingdom is coming, crashing down. What do you weep over? Are you more apt to weep over your stocks crashing than your spiritual state before God? Think about it. What is it that causes us to weep? Again, we're all in the same boat. Uh, Jerry said it as he prayed for us this morning. Apart from the grace of God, we're all in the same. We, we can't be changed, right? But we all relate to this because of the human condition. But what we find is, is that we look at this king and we get the sense that he's enamored with the things of the world and that he weeps, but he weeps over the things of the world. He doesn't weep over the things of God. And, and, and here we see this half-heartedness. You remember, Paul says it like this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. I love this connection of Matthew 5. He, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you remember this passage, it's speaking primarily not of uh, poor in material means. The location of a person's poverty depicted here is internally. They're poor in spirit. They recognize their need, poor in spirit. This morning, is your attitude one of poor in spirit? Are you realizing the bankrupt state that you're in and the need you have of God to intervene. Well, what happens as a result here is, is in Matthew 5, 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn. And the question is this, what are they mourning about? They're mourning about their spiritual condition. You see, there's a connection between the godly mourn over their need. They mourn over their sin. The worldly mourn over what they love. They, they mourn over the things of the world. And that's the difference. But his half-heartedness is illustrated not only in what he loves, it's illustrated in his lack of full obedience. We get into a really interesting story. Verse 15, follow it through with me. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. First thing he was commanded to do, how does he respond? Obediently. What does he do? So he took a bow and arrows. Then we read in verse 16, then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. What does he do in response to that command? And he drew it. He's two for two. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. Verse 17, open the window eastward. What did he do in response? And he opened it. Good job. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. I think he's four for four if I'm counting right. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And then look at verse 18. You've got to remember here, Elisha is a prophet of God. 
Elisha has divine discernment into the things of this world, into the things of the hearts of people. And God uses this 15 through 19 passage to illustrate not only the half-heartedness of the king, but to illustrate his man was a vessel through which God revealed to the king the status of his heart. Verse 19, 18, and he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. It could either mean strike the ground directly with the arrows or shoot the arrows directly into the ground. But notice what happens. Before we look at what happens, Ferguson says this, that the force of these words in the Hebrew is the idea of keep on striking the ground. But the king does what? To this point, he has followed obediently to every request of Elisha. But at this point, what happens? And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Verse 19, if we take what Ferguson suggests here, we see the idea of what is unfolding. We see that while he was commanded to continually strike the arrows, he only did it three times. And listen to the words of Elisha in verse 19. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Here's a guy with a fleshly perspective, with a love of the world, with a half-hearted devotion. It's really being generous to call it half-hearted. It's like, a, it's like having your big toe into the things of, of God and having as much of your body over here across the line of the things of the world. It's like he, he had the sense of, of outward eh, to the things of God, but there was no heart in it. His fleshly loves and perspective, his pursuits, his half-heartedness, all of it is revealing here. And the danger and the warning that we see when we look at this is like, hey, if you're going to be like the king, you understand the damage, the destruction, the consequences. Where is your heart wholehearted? Is it in your desire for pleasure? Are you wholehearted in your desire for pleasure? Are you wholehearted in your pursuit of your hobbies? And be encouraged this morning. Do you realize if you're here today and the response of your heart, even to reading about the king, is, oh God, would you strip away my fleshly agenda and my fleshly pursuits? And would you, oh God, renew my mind and renew my, my very heart goals to follow after you wholeheartedly? Be encouraged. It's an example and a demonstration of the grace of God at work in you. But here we see this warning. It's the plight of all humanity. Only Christ can change us, transform us. You remember in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's referred to, Jesus refers to it as the single eye. The single eye, what you focus on, what you look to. Like sense and a concern for godly things, but no reality. I remember uh, years ago, you know, you, you have stories in your family that sort of shape what you remember and and maybe I would think of five or six that really stand out to me. 
but like there was a pivotal point that took place in the life of my family before I was born. And my dad used to share it with me. And, and my dad would tell me the story like this. He'd say, Stephen, I was, I was in the ministry for, for many years. And uh, I, I, I wanted to teach the Bible. I, I believed in Jesus, but I didn't see myself a sinner. And he said, as, as he was in the ministry and in church work with people giving him all these praises of being a good man and a good preacher, the Holy Spirit began to reveal to him his heart. And he told me this story of like this, this moment, that this, what he, re, he spoke of is like an instrumental time and moment in his life where he really believed in God's word. God met with him and revealed to him the condition of his heart. And in that moment and in that evening, he told me, he said, you know, I can't really explain it, but he said, I, I was before God in his word and I was praying and it was just like the Lord began to reveal to me who I was apart from him. And he says, I've never cried like that in my life. And he looked back on it several years later, not even understanding the significance of it in the moment, but he saw that in the course of his sanctification, even as a man that was in his 70s, early 70s, he looked back and he saw that as a transition point, a turning point, a point of conversion, a point of change. Have you experienced that this morning? Have you experienced a point in your life where you can look back and you can see where the grace of God led you to a departure and a turning away from the things of the world to the things of God? Because I beg you to consider and to pray, one, to rejoice over if that's happened. If it's happened, to pray for a walk of wholeheartedness before God. But friend, I pray that that no one goes through this series and studies these kings that were around the things of God but foreign to the things of God. I pray that none of you in this room have just had a religious experience or some type of outward profession or some type of empty externalism and have never understood the grace of God that works in the human heart and brings about real change. We can outwardly profess many things that we don't inwardly understand or know. Thirdly, don't lose hope despite the current outlook. Notice here, and we're we're about to close, but notice here, verse 20. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. If you thought the other story was interesting, put your seatbelt on. This is amazing. We get into this next verse. Now, I want to remind you, Elisha parted the Jordan, healed the waters, cursed the bears, the curse of the bears on those young men, the filling of the valley with water. Remember the valley of blood, the deception to the Moabites, the miracle of the vessels of oil, the Shunammite woman and her son, the resurrection of the Shunammite son, the healing of the gourds, the miracle of the bread, the healing of Naaman. I mean, I'm just on number 12, and you could go through like 28 if you bring in all the prophecies he gave. He was mightily used by God. And here, now, he's dead. Verse 21, And as a man was being buried, 
Behold, a marauding band was seen. The man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. They're burying a man. They see trouble on the horizon. So now they have to quickly bury this man. And they bury him by throwing him, presumably, into a cave where Elisha was buried. You see, back in in our time, the burial customs would make this pretty much impossible, right? Unless you had a bulldozer. But that, I mean, in that time, how in the world could they do this? Well, they, they, they had different burial customs. And they throw his body in, but look at what happens next. What happens next is, is simply amazing. What we read here is that as a result, God, the man's thrown into the grave of Elisha, and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Wow. He's been dead long enough for his body's decomposed to the place where his bones are what touches the man who was being buried. The dead man's body touches the bones of Elisha, and now he literally is resurrected. He comes back to life. He stands on his feet Now, what in the world is going on here? What is this showing? What is this illustrating? What is this pointing out? Well, we look at this and what we find is is that this seems to be a picture and a reminder to the people of Israel. And, And one of the things that we have to keep in mind, we get into verse 20. He died, they buried him. Bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. As the man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. The man was thrown in the grave of Elisha. As soon as that man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Joahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of this to say... What appears to be going on here, when when this was written to the people of Israel, the people that would have been the ones to initially read this would have been the people in the Babylonian captivity. What would this mean for them? What would this illustrate to them? Everything in Israel is pointing towards doom. It's pointing towards judgment. It's pointing towards destruction. And yet in the midst of this, we see this reminder of the resurrecting power of God. The resurrection power of God used through his servant, Elisha. Many people have speculated what is taking place here, but I think they're on to something when they say the people that would be in bondage and the people that would be in slavery and exile in Babylon would be reminded that even as they faced judgment and even as they faced what God announced would come to them, they're reminded that the hope of a future and the hope of a resurrection would come through God as they turned to the God of Elisha, as they submitted to the word of the Lord. I love this because there's so many parallels. One greater than Elijah, one greater than Elisha, one greater than Solomon has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who has power over the grave. And what I love here is this. It's like a reminder yet again, even in his death, you often hear of people that die, and it's 
through their death that God uses their life to get people's attention. Have you ever seen that happen? Where maybe a child, I heard an example of a child that grew up with a father or mother that loved the Lord or a grandmother, and they never turned away from their sin, but then it was in the reflection on their life and death that God brought about an awareness and used it, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, changed the person and brought about regeneration and conversion. You, you see all of this, but the thing I want you to be reminded of, we learn here so many things about the character of God. He's the God of life. He's the God of power. He's the God that takes those with no hope and brings hope. He's the God that could take that valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37 and do what? Bring it to life. He's the God that could take all these things, and that leads us into our final observation, final lesson, Don't lose sight of the faithfulness of God. He's faithful to his covenant, and he's faithful to his word. Look at really quick at verse 22. Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel in all the days of Jehoahaz. Verse 23, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. This morning, are you running from God? Are you clinging to the things of the world? Understand the character of God. He's the God of grace. He's the God of compassion. He's the God who turns towards sinners. He was gracious. He had mercy. He had compassion. A deep, kind sympathy and sorrow felt for another. He he turned towards them. You would think that how can a God who's holy and wise and just turn towards sinners? He's a God of grace. But we see in this turning that God would be faithful. Why was he faithful? It says here in the text, because of his covenant with who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going back to the promise he gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You ever heard of the Abrahamic covenant? He made a covenant with Abraham that he would fulfill. He reiterated that covenant he made with Abraham with his son Isaac. He went on to reiterate the promises of the covenant to Jacob. And here it says in the text that the reason that God would continue to be merciful and compassionate is because he was a God who kept his word. He was a God who kept his covenant. This morning, don't lose sight of the fact that the God who keeps his covenant with Israel is the God who keeps his word to us in his scripture. It could be this morning you're going through suffering and you don't understand how or what or why, but you can hold on to the promises of God, that God will work in the midst of pain and suffering. It could be that you are overwhelmed with with worry, but you need to understand the promise of God that that God will never leave you nor forsake you, that he'll care for you. You can trust him. Whatever it is, whatever you're going through, he's a faithful, promise-keeping God. And he tells them here, this is why I kept my word. This is why I was gracious. And finally, he's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his word. And look at the last couple of verses. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, Benadad, his son, became king in his place. And then in verse 25, then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Benadad, the son of Haziel, the cities he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father in war. And lo and behold, what did Elisha say would happen as a result of striking the ground three times? Three victories over Syria. 
What do we read? Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. God is faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his word. We can trust him. Friend, this morning, don't treat God's mercy lightly. Don't downplay the seriousness of half-heartedness. Don't lose hope despite the current outlook. Don't lose sight of the faithfulness of God. Now, here's my question for you. Why is it, friend, do you think that it's possible? Can you, can you consider this with me in these last moments? Why might it be that God put 2 Kings 13 in your path this morning? Why might it possibly be? Are you going through circumstances in which God's word speaks to you in the very circumstances you're in right now? Is it possible this morning that you're toying with loving the world over the things of God and you're living with a misguided, deceptive idea that you can compartmentalize your faith and not walk in wholehearted obedience? Is that you this morning? The goodness and the kindness of God calls out to us right where we live, in the here and now, at this moment, and his word intervenes in our life. And the Spirit speaks specifically in his word and points it out to where we are right now. Where are you at? How are you going to respond? I want to close with this verse. You remember in our studies in Hebrews? He says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And he comes down and he says in verse 12 of Hebrews 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then two verses later, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I pray today that we would see how God speaks clearly in his word and that we would ask the Lord, okay, God, help me now to apply what I've heard in my life, in my circumstances, in my perspective, in my loves, in my pursuits. I pray, oh God, I would have a heart that follows after you. Would you bow your head? Lord, thank you for your word. I pray we'd be changed as a result of what we've seen in 2 Kings 13. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.